Hello everyone, uh, thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Healing Snowflake. Um, thank, special thanks to those who have supported and shared my content so far. Um, big, big thank you. It's uh, really helping to share these stories that I really, really want to inspire you with. So what I promised to you um, as my podcast was enlightening and fascinating conversations from the most interesting people that I know and two of these people are sat right in front of me um, and I'm so honoured to have them here so thank you and uh, they're going to share their story with us today. So family I would like to introduce you to Andrew and Devaki. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. And I think it would be fitting to first tell you of how me and Andrew became friends. Is that okay with you, Andrew? Yeah. Um, do you want me to start now? I, um, I, I, I can, um, I can, I'll go first if that's okay. Yeah, okay. But do yeah, tell yeah. me yes, if yes. any of this is inaccurate because yes, it, okay. was, it was quite a long time yes. ago, wasn't it? Yes. So I met you, Andrew, on a train about five years ago, I believe, on a train from Birmingham to London. Um, you were sitting on a seat opposite me on the next aisle. And uh, I remembered um, you got up from your seat and obviously you're a stranger and I didn't know who you were at all. And you got your guide cane out. And I thought, oh, okay, so this person is clearly blind. And from then on, I was sort of captivated by your presence. And you used, you used your cane, because I think you were taking yourself to the toilet. So you guided right. yourself yeah. to the toilet, and then you went to the cafeteria to get yourself a sandwich. Oh, Do you remember that sandwich, Andrew? Well, I don't, don't remember <laughs> the exact sandwich. But <laughs> it was a long time ago. Um, but it was... Sometime in the summer yes. of 2018. Wow, you have really good memory. I'd uh, been up to Preston. No, sorry, it was a train that was... Um, I we, We'd had a an annual general meeting in Lytham St. Anne's. Okay. Um, we being the... National Federation of the Blind of the UK, of I which remember. I was then president and still am, mm. hanging on by the skin of my teeth, in the sense that I'm probably I'm due to finish fairly shortly. Uh, and it was a train that I thought I'd got on at Preston. So Pat, did that? Would that train have called at Birmingham, perhaps? Yes, I think it did. Mm. Yeah, but I I remember it was going to be a one hour and forty minute journey, and so I saw you from the start of my journey, and I thought to myself, I'm going to be on this train for a while, and I was so fascinated by you, and I'm not a stranger to going up to people and just striking up a conversation. So I hope I didn't surprise no, no, you no, in no, any no. way. Well, it was quite, it, 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 it helped to pass the time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was a fascinating in encounter. Yeah. And when you, when you got back to your seat, I just remember thinking you navigated yourself so smoothly back into your seat with very, very minimal assistance. You just sat down and started eating your well, sandwich. Well, I think it was fairly near the 
the door, wasn't it? Yeah, and I so think, so I um, think I, I, I found I think I found it fairly easy to navigate back. It's yeah. not always usually um, you leave a clue. You sort of find out a clue, or I find out a clue to where the seat is I when I'm on a train. I remind you, Andrew. I don't know if you actually remember this, but when you got up from your seat, I f- I think um, on the edge of the seat on a Virgin train, there's the number is on bra- is in Braille, and I f- and I remember you putting your hand over that number, and you sort of memorized that number, and then you remembered whether you went left or right to go to the toilet. I it's don't remember that. You don't remember that, but <laughs> no. I think that's what I saw. Yeah. Um, but yeah, luckily, when I introduced myself to you, you were absolutely lovely and very welcoming, and you were willing to answer my very, very random questions. It, it was it was like a 10-year-old sitting next to you, asking, like, and who has never met a blind person. And I was just so fascinated and inspired by you that... We were just we we spoke for about an hour and a half, and the thing is, the train was actually full, so these people must have been thinking, "Oh, th- I'm sure, I'm pretty sure that girl didn't know that man," and she just <laughs> went up to him and started talking to him. But I'm so glad I did, otherwise we wouldn't be here today. Um, when we uh, got off in London, uh, we both needed to catch um, a connecting train back home, and I remember you got off the train and you and I said to you. Andrew, Pro- do you uh, probably arrange assistance? Have you yes, know? you did yes. arrange assistance yeah. already, and I and I yeah. sort of stayed with you because I thought, oh, you know, I really, really want to help you. But you were like, no, I've got this covered. Don't worry. And I just, even to the end of the journey, I was still so inspired by you, um, and I just, I was just continued, continued to be amazed of at how, um, how organized and just confident you were with how you were living your life um and especially in a place as busy as central london you were still managing to navigate yourself better way better than me anyway well Um, i've I've been i've been living in london since 1981 which is over half my life quite a bit over half of it now uh i came down here when i was 26 so you know i've got used to it really yeah. Well, I remember um, you told me a little bit about your story, which we're going to dive more into today. Um, and this is like a gift, really, f- to share your story with others and, and you and yours as well, um, Devaki. So uh, when I knew that I was going to do this podcast, uh, you were one of the first people that I called to say, um, would you like to be a guest on here? Because... I sort of took your details down and I locked it into my brain and I remember if I'm going to do a podcast one day, I definitely, definitely, definitely want Andrew on there. Um, So when I called you and you said, yeah, yeah, I'd actually really like to come on there. And you said to me, I actually have a friend, um, Devaki, who also has her own story of vision loss and would you like her to come in there? And I was so excited by that. And I'm so, so happy and so thrilled that yeah. Devaki is also here with us today. So yeah. thank you for that, Devaki. Yeah. Thank well, you. De- I've, I've, yeah. I've known Devaki since 2017 and we've become uh, close friends. Good. And we, in fact, I persuaded Devaki to become to stand for the executive council. So I'd like to start 
by um, with you both telling us a little bit about yourselves, um, yeah. your background and how you came to be the person that you are today. So, Andrew, I know, I know a little bit about you, but I'd really like to hear it again, and I'm right. pretty sure that okay. our audience would. So yeah. would you like to go first? Yeah, well, I was born uh, at the end of 1955. Actually, I should have been born in 1956, which is part of the story. Okay. Uh, <laughs> because I was two months premature at birth, yeah. <laughs> um, and that led to, in those days... Um, children were given oxygen i'm sure they still are when they're born premature mm. but they didn't know how to regulate the oxygen in those days mm. and i was given too much which affected my eyesight oh, now okay. it can it can affect more than that uh it does sort of have a bit of effect with me on my sense of direction and things like that as well but for other children, it can be worse. Uh, and um, and so I was born in East Yorkshire, Beverly. My father was the curate of Beverly Minster. Um, when I was about two, to between two and three, we moved to North Yorkshire uh, to a village called Lythe near Whitby. Um, famous seaside resort. I've heard probably of I've heard of probably <laughs> most famous for a fictional character that Dracula uh, came on used Whitby as a refuge. He landed in 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 Whitby, so it is said, but obviously it wasn't true. <laughs> and um, anyway. So I lived there, and, well, what happened when I was um, about five years old, four years, ten months to be exact, um, because in those days um, they sent all blind children away to school. So I went to school in Sheffield, which is good, nearly 100 miles away from, from Whitby. So I went to boarding school at the age of four years, ten months, and... Um, so my parents then moved um, to South Yorkshire, um, a place called Bolsterstone, a small village uh, 10 miles north of Sheffield. I'm sure that, by the way, that a lot of our audience are from London or from another city and they will be Googling these places well, that you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, so yeah, it, yeah. yeah like I'm hoping that my, my sense of direction places. isn't brilliant. So <laughs> I think Bolsterstone is north of Sheffield, okay, but yeah. it's not. Um, and so it's certainly 10 miles away from it. And um, so that's where I lived for 19 years. Mm. Um, I went away to, uh, after... After primary school, I went to school in Worcester. Uh, it was a boys' grammar school for blind, blind boys. Um, and then I went to Hull, try, attempted university at Hull University studying theology. Uh, that didn't really work out. Um, and so I then did, I thought I wanted to do social work. And I did a, um, a placement in Watford uh, and on a housing estate, um, helping to 
try and revive a community centre there. Uh, then I went to Liverpool University, uh, but really I'd, I think I'd already decided then that social work wasn't for me, but I didn't really know what else I went to, wanted to do, so I sort of drifted into that, um, didn't, didn't, didn't succeed at that. And so um, then after years of un unemployment, which was a bit depressing, but uh, I, I sort of improved my language in German no, during that year. Um, I By that time, my parents had moved to Lincolnshire, South Lincolnshire. And then I came down to London to do commercial training uh, course in 1981. So that's a sort of pre-London phase of my life. Well, you've um, you've only been speaking for a couple of minutes, and already what you've achieved in your life is actually pretty amazing. And it doesn't it doesn't sound like anything has held you back at all, even being blind. It's well it's quite amazing, really. I think it's because the purpose of those schools are to educate people to cope with with life as a blind person. Mm. Um, th there are drawbacks, because the, d the drawbacks is that you're separated you're from your family at a young age, yes. uh, and that has affected my ability to make relationships, I think. Mm. It's, um, it, you know, it, it, I'm moving from a small village in North Yorkshire to a, a noisy school, uh, was quite frankly quite terrifying at that age, and I remember that vividly. I remember the journey down in, in the car, and as I got closer and closer to the school, I got more and more anxious, and really, I, I didn't. I wanted that journey to last as long as I could because I didn't want to be there. Yeah. Uh, and um, you know, I think it takes a long while to adjust. And I think I spent, I would say, at least the first, first 35 years of my life denying that that was a problem. Mm. Because you, you, you actually have to, you think, well, I'm here. Mm. I've got to survive. I've got to cope with this. Yeah. So you don't, um, you end up be internalizing that. And you end up thinking, well, this is life. I'm not going to be affected by by what by what's happened, mm. but then when you try and get into relationships and so on, you actually realise that it has affected you yeah. quite profoundly. Yeah, and that's actually amazing because a lot of the feelings that you're talking about, I think everybody it surfaces for everybody at some point in their life. But plus, you've got the added hurdle of being blind as well, and you managed to still be able to direct yourself in certain ways to get somewhere in life. It's just absolutely amazing. Um, can I just um, go back to the beginning, Andrew? Um, did you say, so when you uh, were born, did you, was it a gradual sight loss or were you blind from birth? No, I had a little bit of sight in my left eye mm. uh, and that deteriorated when I was 18 okay. through to additional cataracts which couldn't be operated on. Um, and so I've got memory of colour. Um, mm. I, I, I think the little bit of peripheral sight I had in my left eye was quite clear. 
Okay. I think it will, you know, because quite a lot of visually impaired people end up with quite blurry vision. Yes. I was lucky that I didn't have that. So my memory of colour is quite good. But, of course, you know, everybody's memory of colour is different. So yes. you can't be absolute about that. Yeah. But it, 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 you know, and... Uh, when I was a teenager, I bought a pair of binoculars and I could go to see cricket matches with mm. my with my dad and look through the binoculars. That you know, for about three years, I did that. Or you know, binoculars were quite a prized possession of yeah. mine because I suddenly find I found I could see things that I'd not been able to see before. Mm. Um, but um, you know, the 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 the, the the vision was quite limited. I could never read. I could never read print. Mm. Uh, I tried to. I remember as a, when I was about thirteen, I got a bit interested in coins, mm. and we looked at a magnifying glass to see if we could magnify the coins, and it didn't work. So I think that sort of magnification probably wouldn't have worked with my eyes at all. Mm. Because I never wore glasses, mm. so um, uh, yeah. Does that answer yeah, your question? Yeah, definitely. So when you, um, so it, when did you say you lost sight of your um, from your left eye? What age? About were you? eighteen, which was about a bad 18. time because it was about the time I was due in transition from right. leaving school to going to university, okay. uh, and you know that was also quite an anxious time as well yeah, because it was a big transition uh the being away from home didn't bother me but you know it was being from being at um at a school with about 70 pupils in both cases the schools were about that size to being at a university with 3500 4000 yeah, students uh that that was quite difficult and the the transition in those days, there wasn't the technology that yeah. there is now to help you to learn. You know, I had to mm. braille out my essays, then tighten out. It was uh, everything took a lot longer. So did and you, I'd chosen um, to study theology, or rather I hadn't chosen. I'd sort of chosen it, but I wanted to do history, but my A-level history wasn't good enough. Right. And I sort of felt a bit pressurised by my dad to do theology but in truth, it probably was the only subject that I could have done, done other than, so I didn't know, know a great deal about the social sciences, probably in hindsight, if I'd known a bit more about the social sciences, I might have done sociology or something like that. So when you went to um, university, was that the one in Liverpool? That was, that was Hull. Oh, in then Hull. later I went to Liverpool to do social work. So was there... So did you go to university with other visually impaired people or was no, it I mean you you you, 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 you did, certainly at Hull I came across two or three others but mm. um, so happened that one of them was a girl who I'd known at primary school that oh, was the same wow, age okay. as me. Okay. Um, we um, well I mean we you know we weren't particularly close. Mm. Uh, she was a bit she was she was a bit sort of She's not watching this. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. But, she, but, she, but she, she, was, she was a bit of a, a swat. And, uh, her, what she was that, a, what's that mean? What does that, a 
what's that word mean? A SWAT. Oh, a SWAT. Sorry, yeah, yeah. a SWAT. Okay. Yeah. So she was she was really very very academic, mm. uh, and she was an only child, and she was very she was very bright, very bright. Mm. I always felt a bit overshadowed from by her at primary school. Do you know it's really funny, Andrew, that these um, feelings and these stories and these perspectives are exactly the same. Uh, perspectives that I hear today working in a secondary school it's uh, it's quite funny really yeah um so really from when you were 18 you were on your own pretty much yeah. you were really out uh, in the real world at Liverpool I'm trying to remember I'm not sure if I met any other visually impaired students at Liverpool there probably were some but I don't I don't remember coming so how was um so how was university for you in terms of making friends and it was sort of all right but then the um i don't know i think it, it i i think because i failed afterwards mm. or my perception was i failed i didn't keep in touch with people mm. very much afterwards uh and um so yeah, it 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 was okay, but um, I ne at no time did I live in a, a hall of residence, and probably that would have been yeah. a bit better. Yeah, because I feel like that whole the um the I, when you go into halls as a university student, that's sort of really what propels you into yeah. that world of friendship. Yeah, really. I lived in a student house in Hull, and then I lived in the cat. I'm not a Catholic, but I lived in the Catholic chaplaincy on Unionland Park in Hull for the third year, and um, I that was um, that was, I really I enjoyed that year. I think I was full of anxiety about all sorts of things. I, I think in the it's taken my, my relationship with my my faith as a Christian has always. I've always found it a bit tortured because because of the the sort of family background, uh, you know my, my my, you know, having a father as a vicar, it's almost a bit like having, and I'm not being blasphemous here, mm. but it's almost being like having God as your father, right. because you <laughs> feel understand. that you've got to live up to a lot, yeah. and I and I and I think I've always beaten myself up until, until you know, probably, you know, I got a bit more relaxed. I don't like to say this, but I got a bit more relaxed once he died, in a sense, mm. because I then, then I then I went through a phase where I didn't go to church at all, mm. and then I came back to it because a relationship had broken up, and I've really found that I was feeling pretty lonely, and thought, well, I'll go back to singing in the church choir, which I did and mm -hmm. still do now. Do you have any siblings, Andrew? I have got a sister. She was adopted. There's a. Um, I had. I had an older brother, who, I didn't know because he died after a year, after a day or two, um, and that is why my parents took the decision, because basically my mother had had similar problems in both pregnancies, and produced two premature babies. Richard more premature than me so he didn't survive and I was premature so they adopted and so I have a sister called Catherine Kath mm. uh, we're not very close um, 
yeah, that's probably the, you, you know, it's a double whammy, really. It's going away to school plus the adopting, the adoption yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, because she sees me as having been closer to my parents, which I probably was. But, so you, you know, but, 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 but I had the disadvantage of going away to school. So, right. Right. It, you know, yeah. and I don't think she fully appreciates that. And it's so it's the trials and tribulations of family relationships, isn't it? And it's um it's actually it's um almost when people hear of what they go through with their families, it's not something that is very alien to people, you know, everyday people go through that. But uh yeah, we'll dive more into that though, um and uh to your story, Andrew. Thank you so much for that. So um Devicky. Yeah. Um would you like to share your story? How did you, how did you, um, what is your story regarding vision loss and how, what's your background? Um, basically, I lost my sight when I was 45. Um, so it's totally different to that of Andrew in that sense. Mm. And also, I was born in India and then I was, I graduated from there, uh, from a medical school, after which I was uh, uh, working there as well in a couple of disciplines, mainly uh, obstetric and gynecology and ultrasound scanning and some general practice as well. <laughs> this is all because before I uh, specialized and then I came over here to specializing optic gyne and uh, through the Sorry, journey um, I lost I my sight. To, uh, I just want to uh, ask, I did ask you on the way here, but I just want to make wanted to make it clear for our audience, um, oh, yeah. for those who are medical illiterate like me. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you, uh, so you're a doctor yeah. and what did you specialize in again? Yeah, it is obstetric and gynecology is a field where uh, I will be seeing only the pregnant women and uh, uh, through their pregnancy until childbirth, as well as yeah. gynecology deals with the diseases of the female uh, genital system, yeah. to be honest, uterus and ovaries and all that. And um, that's what I was doing here, specializing on that. And I have almost completed my part two, which earns me the member of Royal College of OMG. Uh, and just before I take the part two, I lost my sight. Um, mine was all of a sudden, and it was, I was working, and then I did my rota without any problem, and the afternoon session was my gyne clinic, and that's when I realized I'm not able to see and read the GP referral letter because I need to read the letter mm. to know what this patient has got and then I examine and then we take it from there. But mm. So when you were looking at this and you sort of realised that there might be something wrong with your sight, yeah, only what, what were you seeing? Were you seeing, was it blurry? I was not able to read, yeah, it was blurry. And, yeah, and that, that came all of a sudden? Yeah, because I mean, I am, I'm in the same medical profession but still I didn't realise this was following a journey back from India after about uh, three, four days. Mm. I did have a severe headache, but I'm, I'm generally very 
good in coping with pains. And yeah. So I thought it's just a jet lag. Maybe I'm feeling a mm. bit uncomfortable. But actually, it was a. It's called reumatoid neuritis, where the optic nerve is surfing yeah. due to some inflammation. I've read about it, and I just ignored. I thought, no, I'll be fine if I have a good sleep. Mm. But um, that day, it was a Tuesday. Monday, I worked normal, and Monday I went to the A and E, and then uh, a doctor, a colleague, he 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 thought that I have sinusitis, and he had given me some antibiotics and painkillers, mm. uh, which is paracetamol, basically. Uh, anyway, the following day, so at I was in the theatre. At this point, they didn't say anything that they might, could be wrong, might be wrong with your eyesight. No, they didn't mm. examine my eyes. And mm. I probably have not emphasized that the pain was so severe. I, I can't remember that. But anyway, the following day, Tuesday morning, was my cesarean section theatre. I did that uh, without any problem. And... Um, the afternoon is the time I discovered I had problems in reading. Mm. And then I this clinic is booked up and myself and another doctor were only uh, on the rota for the clinic and I couldn't run away leaving my patients to go and look at my, my health. I have to finish the clinic, say about 4.30 or quarter to five. Mm. I'm going to look for... My, my another colleague told, come on, we can't ignore, we, we'll have to go and see a doctor. And he took me around to a, a person who would have been the ophthalmologist, but unfortunately he just then left. So I have got uh, nothing to do. Then I find another person who is a medical consultant who used to come for giving opinion to our people. Then he said, my colleague said, come, let's go and see him at least. Let him have a look at your eye. Mm. So he, we, we both reached there and then he was having a stroke clinic. And then he just asked me to wait until he finishes the last patient. And then he had a look and he found that is my eye, the uh, back of my eye is swollen up to grade four. Mm. And it's called retinopathy. It's papilledema. Sorry, retinopathy. Retinopathy mm. uh, due to some uh, inflammation, actually. So then I was asked to come in immediately. So I had to. And can uh, I just ask, was this affecting both eyes? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. And. I, uh, and and usually it's very, very unusual to have this inflammation uh, to both eyes. I'm so mm -hmm. unfortunate, yeah. They say, uh, usually it's unilateral, which is one eye. One unilateral eye, yeah. means one-sided mm. affected. Bilateral is both sides affected. Mm. So mine is bilateral, which is very, very uh, rare, but it, it does mm. happen in around 10% of individuals, I think. Um, but then uh, they asked me to come in and they started investigating. I think I had a bit of a sight walking my way home to bring things up to the hospital. No, I was about to ask you, at, at this point, yeah, it was so your eyesight was deteriorating? Slowly going down. Slowly? Um, or um, Yeah, slowly from the lunchtime to evening. Yeah. And what, uh, what could you see at that point? Could you still make out... Um, some shows you, or you could you still read a little bit, or what's? I couldn't read anything, but I could make my way home by the <laughs> usual ro route. You know, ju I just lived yeah. opposite to the hospital where I worked. By just knowing your yeah, routine. Yeah, yeah, my routine. But I could see uh, very, what to say, uh, sort of some something in front of you, which is blocking your vision. But it's still I could still visualize something right. which I could make my way home. 
But once I went home and picked up my stuffs, I couldn't really uh, do much. So I have to call my colleague. Uh, her name was, uh, she's, a, she's from Calcutta, Dev Johnny. So I told, can you please come? Because I need to go to the hospital. I don't think I'm having enough sight to do that. And she did come down. And I wanted to leave the key with her as well mm -hmm. in case. Because I lived in a house outside. I rented privately. Whereas she used to live in the hospital accommodation. Mm -hmm. And we both were preparing for the exam. So that's how we are a bit closer. So how, how much pain were you in at this point? Was it was the pain it um, solely yeah, for in, uh, in, there, your, yeah. in your It started eyes or? three days before. And then it, it was persistent. But... Mm. It was a bit modified because of the intake of paracetamol. Right, bit. yeah. But uh, still, the loss of sight is really difficult. And mm. I can't even really sit and think because it's all happened. You know, it just that. happened, yeah. But that morning, I woke up normal and I operated okay until afternoon. Mm. I was able to perform a surgery. But then that afternoon became difficult. But I was able to do the cleaning because... Only reading was difficult. I could, I could examine the ladies and the mm. inserted pessaries and all that. Mm. So uh, we have gynae nurses who are well trained as well. So if I say size uh, some pessary, say mm. two or something, she will be able to pick up. But I wouldn't be able to read the markings right, on it. Right. But by experience, you know it is, yeah. you know, what, what size is it. But uh, we, we've, we completed the clinic like that because we are only two people. We have to have a list, and, and I can't really run away, so I have to do that before I could go for my own treatment. Anyway, so that night I was admitted. Uh, Dave Johnny helped me to take me to the hospital. And uh, uh, while I was waiting in the A&E for uh, room allocation, mm. uh, I completely lost my sight. It was really a nightmare. When I reached the room, uh, the, the I was admitted in a side room in the medical yeah. ward. I could not see anything. And that night, they came and started doing investigation. Yeah. They did the lumbar puncture mm. to find out what. So they, they did quite a lot of investigations. Yeah. Then they thought they didn't have a specialist eye unit in that hospital. This is a small place in Northern Ireland called Enniskillen. When I was transferred to Belfast, uh, where there are specialist uh, neuro-ophthalmologists, which are, uh, it's a discipline uh, looking at nerve, Problems of the eye. Of the eyes, yeah. So then uh, I still remember his name, Professor John Green. So he and his team were looking after me. And uh, after the first dose of steroid <coughs> was given, I did not have any sight. It was uh, roughly about 36 to 40 hours. I didn't have any sight at all. Then so what was, um, can I just ask, what was the time period from when you started realizing that something wasn't quite right? To completely losing your sight, what was the time that time period? Uh, it was uh, roughly half a day. Wow! Because that morning I woke up normal. I didn't realize any sight problem. Afternoon, only during the clinic, I uh, I I knew that I'm having difficulty in reading, but still I was able to see. That night when I went to yeah. the uh, I, I think A&D, my attendance would have been 6 o'clock or maybe 5.30. Mm. And then I waited roughly about an hour and a half. So by about 7.30, I, I lost the sight completely. Wow. So when, um, since you had your diagnosis, yeah. 
has your site come back at all in the in a sense that did it come back in um, a little bit or was it completely gone at that point? It is I was completely gone for about 40 hours as I said and then when I went there to Belfast then they have to do quite a lot of investigations mm. uh, before be, because before they start naming steroids I believe because right. any space occupying lesion which is a brain tumor it seems uh, they they don't want to administer steroid to confuse the issue they want to really diagnose it before they start me on any medication right. so that's the yeah. time which was the thing the 40 hours it took yeah. to get there yeah. and then uh, after that they gave me some uh, intravenous medication right. of, uh, which really reduced the swelling of the yeah. retina a and bit. That, that's what's what's causing you pain mostly the swelling swelling yes yeah. and uh, i don't know it, it was well we have different standard of practice here because our nice guidelines have to approve it at that same time i have a friend who was in the united states of america similar story but she recovered her sight completely because she received 3000 grams of that steroid whereas i was given 750 grams right so, and uh, so this is no 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 uh, yeah 3 3 grams of minus 750 milligrams so in two doses so i i got totally 1.5 grams after 48 hours mm. into you know 750 in the first bolus and then after uh, 48 hours the second dose mm. so and i got partial recovery whereas she got uh, full recovery mm. again and do you feel like you would have regained your sight like she did if you had that treatment or who yes knows really? it's both yes and no because my colleagues who are neurologists and uh, uh, they say that there are so many research saying that it doesn't really matter. Mm. See, they have control groups where they receive nothing or placebo. Mm. Even then they have recovered completely. Whereas some people, they don't even if it is a mm. different dose. So they, they say the destiny of the recovery or the percentage of recovery doesn't really depend on anything. They say it just happens. Okay. Uh, so they, they, they say whether I received it or not, it would have been the same outcome. Right. So anyway. So, yeah. So yeah. Wow, that's, wow, that's quite a story, Vicky. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you just describe your vision to me now? Can you give uh, me, um, can you see outlines? And yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I can see a bit. Because uh, you're giving me lots of eye contact right now, which yeah, yeah. When I, you I know that I'm yeah. here. So, yeah, uh, can you describe your vision to me yeah. at this moment? Yeah, I I have, uh, to be honest, uh, my left eye is the best eye. Yeah. The right is the worst. So right. it is, they say it's one bar 60 in my right, yeah. uh, which is, it w my right eye, if I close my left, it will, I can see I hand movements or anything moving close to my eyes within one, one to two feet. Whereas the left eye, I can see a bit in the sense I can see with the, background which is a bit darker yeah. and your face a bit brighter mm. but other than that i can't really probably i can say your fast skin and your hair is black because yeah. it's contrast yeah if it's uh if it's the same color i would be able to uh, recognize anything wow but yeah. uh, other than that i can't really it, this is also it is five or <laughs> sixty which is uh 
up to five feet mm-hmm. I can see few things and I can't I can read a bit but not at this distance mm. I had been given special glasses yeah. only for my left eye which uh, my reading distance is close to the eye it has to be 12 centimeters then I can read a little bit mm-hmm. but I can't really eff- efficiently read a whole page but if there is a letter I can use the glass and see whether it's addressed to me or not but finishing the whole letter uh, it was wow. quite a challenge I wow. can't do that uh, I, I do different things uh, yeah. so when um, so you said you lost your sight at 45 um, did you learn Braille uh, um, not really <laughs> no not no really. I thought I don't know I was probably uh, I don't know why I didn't consider I wasn't reading as I said because I missed my job mm. and I couldn't really think of learning a new skill. I was still trying to get back to the same profession. Right. And the part of it is, I the most enjoyed part of the career is surgery. When I learned that I was not able to do that, it was really painful. I can imagine, really painful. I can yeah. really imagine. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 of course not. Um. I was just um, thinking, yeah. when you when you found out everything and yeah. you, kn- you knew the inevitable, what's, um, how did you go about um, telling work and how, how quickly did, you, did uh, they say to you, well, yeah, you know, this, eff- this effectively ends your career as a... Yeah, writer. well, I... I had to immediately go to my family because I was doing alone on that stage. Yeah. And family is in India, so it's so hard to get any sort of rehabilitation. Whereas where I was working, my one of my consultants, he offered me uh, to stay with him and his wife because he had grown up children and he was almost at the age of his retirement, he said that the one you need to be sorted out. If you just don't go, yeah. you may not get opportunities back in India. But mm. I I really did not consider that. I just went home. Mm. And then I decided after two and a half years of stay there, I discovered that uh, life is so difficult without rehabilitation. Yeah. And there are no means of rehabilitation in India. So... It was quite a challenge for me. I decided to come back and then I started my journey as a blind person. To be honest, more than considering the job, it was more of a struggle to learn a new life because I don't know how to get out. I don't know how to do the shopping. I don't know how to meet my friends. Everything was a big, big problem. Yeah, Yeah, I can imagine. And that's why I really, I was, I really, really, um, wanted to share your story as well yeah. because it's so you and Andrew have the same condition now but your story and it's totally different it's yeah. totally totally different yeah so um thank you for sharing about yeah, your welcome. journey um into blindness but I'd like to talk a bit about you and your background so you're from India yeah. uh, when did you move to England uh, well the first time I came in was in 1997 mm to do my exams to, you know, even though we are qualified back home, we are not supposed to start practicing straight away. So mm-hmm. I need to do a exam called uh, CLAB, 
professional linguistic assessment board at Cambridge will assess us the language skills as well because we have to communicate with the patients here and then some form of medicines uh, uh, like uh, the, the common conditions in India are totally different from here mm. so we do have to get a, a bit more emphasis on the commonly prevalent diseases here so that lab covers that so we, I have to do that which I did in 97 then my son was so young I have uh, I, I'm married and I have a son mm. uh, who's 32 now but at that stage when I lost my sight he was only uh, he was born in 91 so he was 16 mm-hmm. but when I came the e- came to the exam he was only 6 so he couldn't cope missing me so I, I had to go back and I had to wait for another 5 years until he was okay to let me go for my higher studies here and he was in a very good school there. It's an Anglo-Indian school, which was founded when British were ruling us. It's a big city, and then we didn't want to change that school and take him here because the child will have unnecessary trouble in the, you know, in, mm. in the end. So age. even though you were going through what you did, you're still having to make sacrifices yeah. as a mother. That's yeah. So I had to come back in 2002 to start my work here and I lost my sight in 2007. I was undergoing the uh, training programs for obstetric and gynecology to complete my fellowship exam in the Royal College. And and that's when, you know, towards the end of the journey, I lost my sight. And unfortunately, I couldn't sit the exam because uh, there are no special arrangements yeah. for accommodating my extra time. Yeah. And I don't know the other ways of giving the exam. Mm. I have to use the regular reading and marking and all that, which I, I couldn't really proceed with that, so I just had to give it up. Mm. I, su- I suppose there might have been arrangements, but you wouldn't have known about them. Yeah, but I, I did ask the Royal College. They weren't keen. and they I don't know whether they are even aware of it, because mm. when, it, when you go to that high level of specialization, you just... Uh, and also, there may be a reason, because... Obviously, what's the point in you getting the qualification if you're not going to be a surgeon anymore? With my eyesight, doing a surgery is completely ruled out, mm. you see. So and, and I did persevere. And I had much more things worrying me because I have to consider how to start my life as a blind person. And then I was totally depressed for about six months, initial part of my blind life so it's it's really difficult yes and then each year it is nine thousand pounds and i was really thinking twenty seven thousand pounds i'm at the age of 52 or 55 i think at that stage and i <laughs> yeah. thought that am i really going to make a yeah. uh, good out of it yeah. this twenty seven thousand, if it reaches somebody who is much more younger yeah. who they made get a better benefit out of that money. you know. That may be a better use of that money. That's why I thought uh, maybe I just don't do that because yeah. I don't and know. I suppose it's that um, you're at the stage of your life, which is what ev- a lot of people actually come to where you think anything that I do now has got to be worth it. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, I, uh, and I don't know how long can I, have I got a working age? You know, do I, ha- can I set up a, private psychology mm. unit, you know, I- in that case, I can continue up to 75 or 80. Mm. 
But I'm not sure. There are, you know, opportunities. And I suppose I can sort of relate this to Andrew's story where you you said that you felt a lot of anxiety in different parts of your life. And I suppose this is this was your hurdle because yeah. you were coming into this blind world. Into the blind world yeah. and you sort of had to navigate yourself from the beginning. Um, this is a question for you both. How important is it community for blind people? I mean, I know that it's very important as an everyday person to feel like you belong and that you're supported as much as you can be. But for blind people, what would how important is it? Well, I think it, it is important, and I suppose that's why I've stuck around living where I am at mm. Pocklington Lodge. Um, and can we just talk about that? So I picked you both up earlier, yeah, and that yeah. was the first time I'd actually seen yeah. you where you live. Yeah. So um, you live. Well, when is, it like a build, is it a building yeah. complex? Um, it's specifically made. It's, for a, blind it, it's a housing complex for blind people. Mm. It was originally classed as supported housing, but the landlord unilaterally mm. decided that it was um, independent without actually a proper assessment of the situation, which is something that we we have a bone of contention with him about. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, it, originally on site there were, there was a, uh, when I first went there, there was a manager, there was a deputy manager as well. We, didn't, we never got a massive amount of assistance mm-hmm. Um, they, and in fact, the, the the manager when I first went there was sort of something like a sort of Dickensian character, really, <laughs> who wasn't, wasn't very nice at all. Right. Um, but then there was a bit of what I would suppose what I would say was a sort of a golden age. They they then changed the man the upper management, and they went from having a clerk of the trustees to having a a proper chief executive mm-hmm. and for a few for about I think about 12 years mm-hmm. no about 14 years they had somebody who was a housing expert as chief executive and so our uh, conditions incru- improved they had they where when I first went there I shared a flat with somebody with uh, um a ba- shared bathroom and a shared kitchen. Mm. You were just told this is what you've got. This yeah. is who you're sharing with. Yeah. wasn't at all ideal, mm. um, but I hung on because they said they were going to be uh, changing to the. We, we, there was a prospect of independent flats, right. uh, which they changed into in the three phase building project in the 1990s and I ended up with a one bedroom flat um, and um, so there's a certain amount of one bedroom flats and then and then there's some studio flats and there's about three two bedroom flats uh, and then they in they they gradually reduced the management so there was just one manager but we were coping. We were coping with that, all right. So how and many how many flats are in? There's fifty um, flats, 50 flats and every every single person that lives there is visually impaired. 
Yes, yes. I mean, that's what the flats are for. So do you, you know, um, you can have sighted partners living there, but we haven't got any of those at the moment. So, so you have this community in the in these flats. Have you? Do you have um, lots of friends in, in where you live? Well, we have. Uh, yeah, well, we have. Uh, do you chat like? So I live in a flat too, and in, in <laughs> you know, there's I think sixty flats in my block, and all the neighbours know each other for. Mm. Um, well, you, you know who the loud one is. You know well, who, I'm, who I'm, the gossip I'm, is. I'm, Do you I'm, have that in the? I'm the chairman of the tenants' association, oh, so okay. I suppose I know more about everyone. Every well, you know, <laughs> yeah. they did, or, or certainly the committee members would know more uh, than um, than the the average yeah. person. Right. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and I suppose you know the immediate, no, not all the immediate neighbours, but. Uh, on the floor where I live, the first floor, mm. I would say we're probably the more, the most, the friendliest the part friendliest. of the, the building, I would think. <laughs> because so, quite um, a few of us do mix. I forgot uh, to mention this, but Devika, you, you live in that. Um, uh, yeah, well, actually. Yeah, I, I live in a different wing, actually. So, so do, yeah. do you feel, um, so you both live in your own um, yeah. houses. So do you feel that you are very, very comfortable um, in your place? Like, do you know exactly... How do you navigate yourself around around um, your own apartment? Do you, um, do you still... Do you feel like there's some improvements that could be made to make life a little bit easier for you? Or? I think you do, as a blind person, you do learn you to navigate your own space. Yeah. Um, and we don't really have that many adaptations to the flat. They're really, they're pretty, no they're normal flats. I mean, there's good design, like the PowerPoints will be in the middle of the wall rather than the, the, the bottom of the wall. Um, we, quite a lot of us would have talking microwaves. <laughs> wow, okay. Um but they're not a fixture. Yeah. We just, we, we just. I can imagine they're, they're, that a lot of things. I mean, you can buy those from <laughs> RNIB or a company yeah. called Cobalt Systems. <laughs> um, and but we don't, you know, the, the the flats themselves are just normal flats, really. Yeah, I think there are some added features uh, because I'm partial, and there are some special lighting arrangements. Yeah, the the lighting is the lighting is good quality. Yeah, it's especially in the kitchen. Mm. There is something under the cupboards which will really focus more on if you're chopping something. Mm. That helps really rather than you know if you don't have that. It's it's a tiny little help, but for a blind person, yeah, it can uh, uh, even if it difference. improves it by two percent, it's yeah, even something yeah, it's significant. Something. And on the corridor, to be honest, because Andrew lives there over uh, so many years, so probably he doesn't need it, but he still uses it without him recognize or f you know really having it in mind. But subconsciously, he we will hold on to the wooden yeah, there thing is a there. rail at the side yeah. of the. And the when corridors. it I have mean, a break, sometime, sometimes we use it, sometimes we don't, depending yeah. on the house. No, but, but if you're looking for a given door. You, you know there's a gap in the rail yeah. is where the doors are. So supposing I need to go to a third flat in that corridor, mm. I, I keep on, on, on hold mm. 
supposing right side or left side and then i know when there is a break that's number 1 dot and so like that I you can yeah. navigate like that so that, that is helpful and then the numbers on the doors will be in large print raised and also for more importantly as far as i'm concerned there's a, there's right a braille out. number as mm. well yeah. i'm really actually fascinated by braille because i remember <laughs> as a as a child well as a teenager you know when um you come across braille for the first time i sort of i think i remember closing my eyes and just sort of feeling it and i think god this is a whole another language <laughs> because well, it, it is, is. It, is. It, do, it, it doesn't relate to, it doesn't relate to print at all okay. you know it's notable it was the 19th century the time apart from our current age where life has probably advanced more than anything so you know they 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 were they were really you know things were developing at a fast pace and they 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 blind people blind children were as far as the disabled community was concerned were probably the best off um they did see they people saw that there was an advantage in in that they could learn to educate blind people a lot of the other disabled people they were a lot more disadvantaged because they just people just didn't realize that they could educate them mm-hmm. and that and they and, and consequently they didn't get the same opportunities and i suppose it's something it's still an issue to this day really, it certainly is because we have people with various disabilities and we're still trying to navigate our way into having them you know be yeah. as equal as possible in yeah. terms yeah. of learning provide them opportunities equally yes i mean if you if you examine the sort of attitude to disabled people it it's changed an awful lot mm. in my lifetime but it it's still got a, a hell of a long way to go yeah, yeah. definitely yeah thank you so much for that um so i wanted to move on to some question burning questions that oh, okay. we have got yeah, yeah, so yeah. I asked some uh, friends and family um if they had any questions for you. I told them briefly about who you were and because I knew Andrew before I I've only met I only met you today uh, yeah. Devaki but mm-hmm. I told them about you Andrew and um I said which do you have any questions for the two guests I'm coming on so I received 126 questions. I'm not going to be able to ask you all of them, but um some of some questions were actually repeated, so I've picked those ones because I feel like that's the most, you know, um that's that's the those are the questions that people are mo- most curious about. So, um I've split questions into three different um categories in in that some questions are for you Andrew some questions are for you Devaki and some that you both can answer yeah so i will take it in turns um i'll start with you Andrew okay. so this question is are you able to describe the way you look uh i probably could because i've got a memory mm. of how i looked before now obviously i don't i don't know how i look now um i mean i'm you know getting old <laughs> uh my beard is getting white there's probably a few white hairs in my head of hair <laughs> uh do you yeah. know what's really funny about this question andrew is the person who asked me this so this was a friend 
And she said to me, and I, so I wrote this question. I was like, yeah, that's a good one. I'm going to ask him this. And then she said, Jenny, can you describe the way you look? And I was like, well, not really. I know the very <laughs> basics. Like, I have black hair. I'm slightly chubby around the edges. Um, I know that I'm Asian. I'm Filipino. I have Asian features. And I can't, to be honest, it's such a weird question because it's like... Yeah. Can I really describe the way I look? Because obviously it's subjective to how people see me, yeah. really. And I actually asked, um, I asked this um, to my um, partner yesterday, and I said, "Can you describe the way you look?" And then he he went on to this um, thing where he said, "Well, the thing is, if if say for example we're describing a criminal." <laughs> that we saw at the police station. We can say, oh, well, that person had a beard or they were bald or they had brand ha brown hair. But the thing is, there's thousands of people that look the way you you are describing. Well, and it just shows that's that... That's why it's so cr hard to catch criminals. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the thing is, that makes you realise that the way you look is actually irredundant because it's... It's almost like a, you're latching onto something superficial because who you actually are has nothing to do with the way you look. Obviously, you know, yeah. at first glance, you can say that somebody looks like this. They've got straight hair. They've got curly hair. They are, you know, they are big bones. They're skinny or whatever. But at the same time, like, for example, you know, me asking you the way you look now, Andrew, is it's completely... It's completely um, irrelevant to how I know you because I now know you as a person and your story, and that is really what sticks out to me. Um, so yeah, it's just when when I got asked that question, it made me realise how much society latches on to image, really. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose it's not something that you've ever really had to care about, right, Andrew? Never really. Cared well, I can't about. say I don't care about the way I look. But yeah, I mean, you, you're very, you're a very um, pristine-looking man right now. You, you know, you clearly care about cleanliness, and you know, you're, you're right about your beard. By the way, there are a few, there are a few white hairs <laughs> on there, but you're definitely not as old as you probably think you look. <laughs> and I feel like that's something that a lot of people, um, that a lot of people. I don't know if you know about society today. People do very, very much care about wrinkles and mm. <laughs> all the superficial stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't care about that. <laughs> no, please don't, because yeah. it's uh, it's actually when you realise how superficial it is, it's actually very, very. Yeah. It takes up too much energy, and it's just it's just nonsense, really. Um, Devaki, this one is for you. Um, do you feel like any of your other senses have heightened since becoming blind? Definitely, yes. Can you describe that to me? Uh, I, I pay more attention to uh, getting clues uh, from my hearing mm. uh, because uh, the reception of information after becoming blind or you know severely sight impaired is mainly the hearing mm -hmm. and the next one may be a bit of smell especially when you are up and around i have attended those uh, some of the training sessions by 
from blind organization. Mm-hmm. They trained me for it. So uh, when I used to use the computer before, I just see and read. But uh, after becoming blind, then I had to start using a reading screen reader, mm-hmm. uh, which reads it for me. Right. And then I need to learn how to use that. You know, like there are s- certain shortcuts mm-hmm. to just. So you would that say one. that your hearing. And has your compensated smelling has definitely for got sharper. Yeah, smelling is mainly they teach us when you're on a train station or going on a road and all that. Uh, this is roughly this many meters and then you will get a smell of sandwiches or coffee or something like that. So this is when, especially you, you live in South London, so you know Clapham Junction. Mm. So when we come from platform one to ten, yeah. Near when you are approaching, uh, you know, in between seven and ten, there will be a cafe with lot of food smell there. Mm-hmm. So they say that's when usually you look for within the next few mm-hmm. doors to turn left to go into platform mm-hmm. twelve or something mm-hmm. like that. So that and I was thinking about this actually because I w- I was thinking a lot. Um, so we have the senses that we do. Yeah. And you kind of realise that, so if you were to lose one sense, you, you realise how much you... Depend really on the ig- other. Yeah. yeah, and how much you really, how much of life that you really ignore through the senses because you're so focused on... The sight. One, yeah, yeah, the yes. sight, yeah. Sight is the dominant sense. Yeah, mm. it is the dominant sense. But only, uh, I must say, because I'm from the medical background as well, mm. those adaptation... Uh, mechanisms they don't really develop unless by default we all depend on sight right you even if you willingly supposing you are very conscious you want to develop your hearing and you don't want to depend on your sight right uh, even if you train yourself mm. by probably hiding your eyes and all that mm. i'm sure when you take off your uh, the the ipad or whatever is that the, the thing you use to blind yourself, mm. automatically you will revert back to your sight because it's yeah. it's it's just that only when it really loses, then the brain start adopting to the next one. It's mm. it's just I don't think you can by by choosing I don't think you can just choose the sense which you want yeah. to use for that. Yeah. If I'm Putting it right, yeah. I think I think it's very difficult. It's almost like everything is automatic yeah. and automatic. Body. Yeah. Wow. wow, wow, that's amazing. That's actually that's how the brain. Well, yeah, it's a the brain is a superior power. We don't know how how much functions are there, yeah. and then we have centers for each special function, and it is by default, as Andrew mentioned, sight is the predominant mm. one. Then the next could be the ears, you know, hearing. And probably the next is the smell, taste, and stuff like that. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is a question for both of you. Uh, what type of assistive technology do you rely on the most? Um, Andrew, well, would you my like computer, I think. Mm. Um, um, Can I just tell, say a funny story, Andrew? When I first met you, I said to you, um, so I'd really like to stay in contact with Andrew. How do I, how do, I do that? And you said, oh, well, 
you know, take my email address. And I said to you, well, I'm not being funny, Andrew, but how are you going to read the email? And you said, uh, I have a computer that tells me when I've received an email and, you know, when I've, um, when I need to send one and what I need to write and all this stuff. And ironically, you, Andrew is probably the quickest responder out of all my friends and family when it comes to replying to my email. So that's I just think that that's um, so ironic in that in a sense that you have that's got this hurdle of obsessed. <laughs> <laughs> so tell tell us about this. Um, um, well, it's an ordinary computer. Um, yeah. It's a laptop, um, but it has a speech. It has a program called JAWS. Mm. You can get a, a braille display to so that you can use JAWS reading braille. Mm. That's quite expensive. Um, it's quite expensive to get it in, in any case to, to for the speech, but there are cheaper programs now. Mm. But I use JAWS, so um, it's a speech program, so it will speak out. Uh, what's on the screen and as I type in it will speak in what I'm typing as well wow that's, that's so when when I send you an email does it um it sort of makes a noise to say that you well uh, yeah, I mean a it's an ordinary computer like it's, it's an ordinary computer so you know you can set it to make a sound when an email arrives wow okay. so it's just you know I'm and just then, using but I'm using the addition of reading the speech. Right, uh, okay. And yeah. then you command it to reply? And then... Well, I just... just uh, I'm using the computer. What I'm doing is using the keyboard to its full fullest extent, mm. which probably a lot of sighted people don't do because they're reliant on the mouse. Right. I can't use a mouse, so I have to learn. But, but, but within... Within the extent of the workings of the keyboard, um, you can do everything on a computer, basically. It's just mm -hmm. that most sighted people don't bother to learn that. They yeah. use the mouse. Uh, but I have to learn to use the, 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 the keyboard to its full ex extent. And do you go on the internet? Uh, yes, I do. Not a massive amount, but I do. And I'm, you know, when I get links and so on, and sometimes when I'm curious about things, I mean, we, you know, we've not, we, we, we both bought the Google Home uh, device, yeah. so we use that as well quite a bit. As blind people, do you know what people's, what society's relationship with technology is like now? Because let me tell you, it's crazy. Well, I mean, we. we, we <laughs> Yeah, I'm aware of all these other um, yeah. Twitter and uh, yeah, Instagram yeah. and Facebook and all that. I, I don't, I don't actually you, use. You, I don't were, actually use any of those. Yeah. I, know um, I mean, I'm actually on Facebook, but I don't make f yeah. full use of it. You might be aware um, of this from people telling you, but if you were in a packed train now, yeah, there will there will hardly be anybody that is looking up. Yeah. To see that doesn't yeah. surprise um, me. To see others because everyone because is they're on their phones. So yeah, we we we, we both got we've both got Apple phones. Yeah. Uh, Debbie Key's much better at using hers than I am mine, but yeah. you know I use mine fairly basically. Uh, Debbie Key can is is better at using hers. And so and now people's problem is trying. There's there is literally I'm not even joking, Andrew and Debbie Key. There are literally apps 
that lock people's phones to take them away from this addiction. Yeah. <laughs> That's how bad it's gotten because yeah. people have just... It, it's and not, and so I guess well, they've used it in the middle of the night. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. it and keeps you up at night. And the thing is, a lot of the stuff that people are looking at are not really beneficial for their mental health. Yeah, exactly. So and, and, and sometimes I get quite annoyed because Andrew's writing, in a way, I, I use it a bit better than him. But sometimes this app business, I'm really annoyed because it sometimes doesn't allow me to do basic functions. I want something to be read this morning. Mm. And it says, please download the app, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I am bloody blind. And I find a place where to turn it off. And I have to... You know, when you it's, use it with the voiceover, yeah, yeah. you have to flick yeah. every time to the right, yeah. go to the bottom of it where it says not now. It's really, sometimes it's frustrating. Honestly, bring back the phones with the keypads where you just call and text <laughs> people because it's just, it's too much. Andrew, this is a question for you. Do you dream? Are you able to describe what a dream is like for you? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I thought this one might come up. Um, I do dream, but I don't. But I don't dream. I don't. These days, I don't see in my dreams. But I did when I was a child. So, and according to what you've seen, and yeah, yeah. So um, these days, I very rarely see in my dreams. Occasionally, I might, but usually. Because I'm experiencing life without sight, my dreams are without sight as well. So there's sort of sound and. So uh, it's uh, yeah. sounds mostly. Yeah, mm. I think right. I in, uh, sorry to interrupt, but I think I had asked him a relevant question once. He was telling me uh, when we were having tea or something like that. Oh, there was a dream. I don't know. One of his parents. He said he he had them in the dream in his dream, and I did ask him. Did you see their face really, or was? And he said he couldn't really remember, but he he was so sure that it was the voice of that yeah. parent. And yeah. I can uh, th- that's why I didn't probe deep into it, but I can understand because by default the sight has gone off right. from his brain. Right. So probably the senses are retaining the voice still. Yeah. I I once did a program on BBC World Service about dreams when I was working for RNIB um, somebody came in and the weird thing is that on the day that the program was going out and I'd forgotten it was going out that it was they were coming to interview me for the, for the I had this amazing dream that the day before so that it, it, it was there in my mind and it was the most bizarre dream that I've ever had in my life. What did it involve? It involved a work colleague. You probably want to edit this out. <laughs> a work colleague eating my liver. <laughs> oh my gosh! It's very weird. Yeah. But there was sort of no. There was no. And that picture had, of that. That or? had vision in it. Yes, it's it weird. Had vision in Weirdly it. enough, it was set in my old school. Wow. Which made no sense whatsoever. Yeah. But I, mean, I guess maybe that's your brain connecting to what you could visualise. Yeah, yeah. Any weird things. That's very, very fascinating. Yeah. Um, Devaki, this one's for you. Mm-hmm. What did you think 
you would find challenging but has actually surprised you? Uh, you mean in the blind life? Yeah. Uh, oh. <laughs> when I gone blind, freshly, everything was challenging. Yeah. Uh, at the moment, uh, I think my main worry is how to make my presentations more efficiently because <laughs> I'm nowhere now. I need to really learn some skill to improve my presentation skills. Uh, other than that, I'm pretty much, uh, you know, uh, good in getting assistance to travel. And I, I have a little bit of useful site which will help me in navigation mainly. I'm 100% sure I'm not on the road and I'm on the pavement. I think that makes quite and a lot I of difference. Can I just add that you came back from India recently, so yeah. you spent a month in India. So yeah. what about travelling? Did you Do you find that um, the, the guidance and support that you had whilst travelling to another country, did you find that... Do you find travelling e not easy, but... Um, I think not it is very easy. It's very easy. Yeah, and, and I thought initially it was more uh, well organised here in England, but nowadays, uh, see, I'm, I'm having this blind life for 15 years now, mm. and I had always been travelling to India, but um, more frequently now. Mm. Um, but the thing is, it is getting much better and much better in India as well. But we, we used to have struggle initially, mm. um, and now it's getting better. So, so from I feel the moment confident. you step foot in an airport, somebody is there to guide you up until you uh, get off the plane in India. Yeah, there yeah. are certain things. Like, they ask us to book an assistance with the Heathrow Airport or wha whatever, the airport itself. They say they can come to the uh, car park to pick us up. But I think that step is not happening very easily. Mm. But... If I get dropped by a cab driver and there are some people who are gods there, they sometimes help us to go to the uh, desk where I can check in or they find some airport authorities to hand us over to them. Okay, good. From that point, yeah. it's good. They take I us think it's actually amazing yeah. that you travel by yourself because I... Get a get anxiety traveling by myself. Really, but, you know, yeah. as an as an adult, and you know, with with my child traveling with my children is, I could just think it's yeah, hard it's very work. difficult. Yeah. <laughs> but I can can't imagine with um yeah, it it's blind, it's quite it's good because of the assistance that assistance. Is, yeah. yeah, good. Um, this is a question for you both, I guess. Um, are you correct me if I'm not wording this correctly, but are you able? to distinguish someone's race just by speaking with them? And I guess this question is asked outside of hearing an accent or a person directly telling you where they're from. Uh, um, I mean, it is the accent mainly. Yeah. Uh, I think sometimes it's a timbre of the voice. Um, which Can you um, describe what timbre means? Well, it's a sort of the mm, pitch. It's a sort oh, of okay. it's the tone. I don't know tone. I mean, somebody who's say Asian or Caribbean, mm. 
who might have lived here for, you know, they, they, their parents came, say, two generations ago or mm. something like that, their grandparents came here, mm. they might still retain a certain... Twang? A, twa <laughs> a certain aspect of the voice that will make you think they're not white British. But it's not necessarily the case. So Not in all the cases, so, yeah. There so, are some you people know, it really... Um, you know, you can't necessarily yeah. tell. And the, the, the person who asked me this question is my friend. Um, so her parents are from Nigeria. And she was and she she actually spoke, <laughs> spoke about this with me for ages and asking. I was like, I'm going to ask, but I, I don't know myself. So I don't know why you're asking me all these questions. And I'm like, so if I spoke to Andrew, would he know that I was black? And I was like, well, probably not, because I think you, probably, lived here, yes. you were born here, <laughs> you've lived here your entire life, and you obviously have all of the um, slang and the London, South London accent, I don't know, that's a thing. Yeah, exactly. So, but but yeah, I think maybe. Andrew is quite good at that, because <laughs> really? to be honest actually, with you... Actually, you describing the, those tiny details there, that's actually really fascinating, because a lot of um, actually, three people asked that question, and it's it got me wondering. Like, well, yeah. well, I mean, first of all, it doesn't matter wherever you exactly. But so matter, that but is why we don't want to give importance to that. But having said that, to make the topic more interesting, <laughs> when you went out of the car to get the coffee yeah. for us just before starting this recording, um. I did ask Andrew, did he recognize uh, your ethnic origin? Mm. And he said, no, he couldn't. I think, I think, not by I the voice I and your accent. That's what I asked. Yeah. I might have slightly picked it up when yeah. I first met you. But to be honest, once I knew that, I don't, It now I can't tell at all. Yeah. I just see you as you know, you just sound like white British, to be honest. Mm. Me, me, me too, by your voice. But I could see you to some extent, yeah. and I had a good sight when I was working here yeah. uh, for five years, yeah. and I've come across so many uh, Asian nurses. So mm. I know to some extent. So I, I said to Andrew, not by her voice, but I could. We, we did literally had that conversation today. Wow, that's <laughs> <Yeah>. amazing. <laughs> but, but Andrew is very good. Yeah, and that is, uh, he, that, that's yeah, a skill, really. It is, yeah. <laughs> but for me, it's difficult because I, I myself is from a different country. But sometimes I verify my exercise, whether it's right with him. I, I'll ask him when we are reading, listening to a commentary or something, then I will tell. Yes, listening to uh, I'll ask him, idea. and he yeah. will tell me, you know, how to how he came to that judgment. And also, some of them would be very simple. By the surname, mm. he can figure right, out. You right, know, he, yeah. he will tell me that. Yeah. yeah, that's really fascinating. And obviously, living in London as well, you met you meet people from all corners yeah. of the world. And yeah. do you yeah. have um, do you have a sense of accent? Like, do you know where? They might be from, from just yes. from that accent. He, yeah. he does, yeah. Well, I, I, I might be able to tell. Yeah, I think I can. You do, Andrew. I think you I can often tell an East Londoner from a South Londoner. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite a the more specifically, uh, Glasgow accent, Birmingham, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Northern yeah, yeah, Irish, yeah, 
all that Very and american yeah, yeah yeah even canadian sometimes you could pick yeah, it up yeah canadians well canadians you usually think oh these are these from the states but you're never quite convinced yeah, never that quite they're yeah. from the states yeah, yeah. so well, if you, you have the tro- courage of your convictions at that stage you say <laughs> are you from canada but usually you don't quite have the courage <laughs> Oh wow that that was quite detailed actually the way you answered that that's really fascinating um <laughs> well that's part of our exercise being blind yeah. how yeah. to recognize certain yeah. things yeah. yeah um this one is for you Andrew you answered it a little bit earlier when you were talking about color but this is a question from one of my uh was it my cousin or my friend no it's my friend How was color described to you as a child in order for you to understand what color is and do you associate or attach different things according to color in your everyday life? No, it wasn't really like that because I could see color. So, so I never learned but but what what puzzled me mm. because I was I'd got a bit of sight and and of course just because you end up with at school with totally blind children doesn't mean you understand their experience. Right. So I would try and relate color to them to to say what's your favorite color. There was no interest to them at all really. Mm. Uh and it was and yes there is this business of red is hot, blue is cold or can't you know can you associating you can you can you know yeah. it's it's an approximation. It, it you know it i mean for a lot of blind people totally blind people i suppose they're sort of fascinated by color in a sort of very second hand sort of sense yeah. that they you know they're puzzled by it right. um but it doesn't really mean that much to them although they might want to know you know you know when they're when they're deciding what the, what clothes they need to buy mm-hmm. they might need to know about what goes with what and so on uh, well, you're very color coordinated today andrew so mm. you i can tell that you have uh, some sense of color um what's your favorite color oh well as a, as a very as a very small child i like yellow and then i graduated oh, I like on too. then i graduated on to blue after that oh okay so when i got a bit more mature as so you right so when somebody describes something to you that is of color so for example a banana you're able to picture yellow in your head yes right yeah fascinating um and to be honest he i think uses a color coder Uh, oh to yeah, avoid a, the, the, oh, avoid a, well, the color coder is just to pick I, up if you spend an awful lot of money on a color coder you can get something that's very accurate but mine isn't is a cheaper version mm. so you turn it on and point it as an object and i suppose about 75% of the time it's accurate right. but sometimes it's not it will say gray and then green and it, and it yeah. probably depends on what the light conditions are around yeah. or something like that i suppose so so um, i guess for you um devicky because you lost your sight later on in life you yeah. know all the colors don't you yeah, yeah. so um actually But i didn't um the question with andrew regarding dreams um i didn't ask you that because i thought well you must dream i think I'm 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 re- I'm I'm dreaming with the scenes because still um 
So, so, you, so years. for example, you're sitting there now and you're seeing me as I am right now. Yeah. If you were to have a dream about me tonight, would you see me as you see me now or? Yeah. Right. Because not, 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 uh, not your, I will still see you with the same color contrast and all that, but yeah. I wouldn't be able to get the full facial features right, because okay. I, I'm not. I'm yeah. not. I, yeah. I don't have that information in the yeah. brain to be honest. Right. Uh, but um. So for example, before you lost your sight, uh, is there parts of the dream that's very clear because you knew what that what that looked yeah. so yeah. a place yeah. yeah. Supposing I'm having a dream, uh, from my school age, mm. then I will still have the features of my friend who was looking at that stage. Not not anymore. Mm. Uh, you know, not not at the moment. So. I don't know. And also there is this thing. I don't know whether that's true. Mm. Um, like the brain can hold 10,000 details at a time. Mm. So when you get fresh details, it automatically deletes off the very old ones. Right. They say that. Uh, to some extent, I used to think, close my eyes and say, how did this person look like at that time? Sometimes I don't get it. But I keep on thinking about it. Sometimes it comes back. So mm. I don't know whether it was embedded deep in the brain somewhere. Mm. When you cross-question whether that comes out, or I don't know how it happens. And the thing is that the um, the whole world about dreams is such a rabbit hole, isn't it? Because <laughs> yes. there's so much science that goes into yeah. it. Um, so coming from a blind person, I think that's why people are really fascinated. Mm. If Andrew dreams because you know yeah. we i dream almost every night but i never remember them but i know that it happens yeah. but i can't imagine sort of having not having a visual visualization of that dream um okay next question oh this one's a bit uh i don't know this might be tough to answer but i don't know you might have you, this might be easy or this might be hard to answer for you. I guess it, it just depends on how much you've thought about it. But would you say that you have a significant understanding or perception of the world that was profoundly shaped through being blind? Devaki, do you want to answer that first? As somebody who became blind, what would you... How... has? Is there a perception of the world that sort of shifted through... Yeah, a lot actually yeah my perception of the world before sight loss is totally different from what it is after sight loss mm -hmm. because um <laughs> the whole areas where you can do and you can't do totally changed completely and um even things which i can do like a, a simple cooking task at home is done totally differently. Um, and attempts of doing it the same way sometimes ended up in disaster. Mm. Simple frying fish one day. I, I did not know that my sleeves were long and I was trying to turn the fish with the spatula. Mm. Somehow this bit of the sleeve got into the <laughs> into the handle wow. and then the whole pan went on my foot I, it was really I never expected that because I still have a bit of a sight but my lower fins are completely mm. gone sometimes mm. we do things 
we are overconfident of certain things. Mm. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I may have to slow down there a bit. But, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's perception of the that's world. A really, that's a really um, interesting point that you made there, that we are overconfident with certain In some things, areas. Some and areas. I'm underconfident in some areas. Mm. I think, uh, you know, the things which I can do, sometimes I think, do you find that um so you have that perception of yourself do you think that it's sort of the way others work in society where they are overconfident in some things and they don't realize that some things takes a lot more care well that's true i mean we all do that uh whatever the disability you have or you don't have any disability we all do that uh i mean i've done things overconfidently when i was fully sighted Mm. And realize that I've done a bit, <laughs> you know, I should have avoided certain things. But this is, uh, we, we all learn lessons throughout our life. I think it starts from the day one of our life until we die. I think it's a process we go through and it, I don't think it will end. Because there are certain days which I've done very well in cooking without, you know, because since then I avoided use having long sleeves mm. when I'm cooking, it totally avoided that disaster happening again. So it's just that knowing what exactly you adopt yourself mm. to there's carry out fi- that task. Devaki, there's some philosophy in that. I'm just I'm gonna dissect it and I'll let you know if I come to a conclusion. But there's some honestly you saying that about certain things, and it makes me realise that when I do my day, day-to-day things, yeah. I will always think of you and how you're navigating this life as a blind, your life as a blind person. But, yeah, thank you for that. What about you, Andrew? Well, it's quite a profound question, this one. Um, I'm, I'm going to sit into... Sometimes, when I'm going out, I'm quite... On, I'm on the streets... I'm quite frustrated by how little I know about my surroundings because you and, and but you can't think about it too much because if you got if you really did you would quite frighten you. Mm. So you do you, you when I'm about really I'm in my world is interpreted quite a bit about what my what mm. I'm finding out with using my long cane. Uh, I mean, obviously, I'm using the other senses a lot, hearing, um, smell, um, and, and, and picking up the senses of what my feet are picking up as well, and my hands as I'm passing things. But it does feel, that does feel a bit scary if you think about it too much, because you realise how little you do know about what, what, the, what your surroundings are so 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 i think you've got to really focus positively about getting around and not think about that too much because otherwise you it it does get quite scary i think you put it right it's it 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 compromises your ability to assess your non-visual clues when Uh, you lose things It's so frustrating because yeah, sometimes, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes they can be inches away from you, yeah. and you don't know where they yeah, are. Yeah. I've got two more questions, and this one is from you both. Uh, what is the proper way to lead a blind person? 
well, I think I also, mean, can I just say, uh, before you answer, that a lot of people are, so this question was originally asked of, do you actually want to be guided or does it annoy you? <laughs> Basically, that's how you ask the question. But, but yeah, it really, be, really, yeah, really depends on the circumstances. I think yeah. before I you put it to him, I would say he is the perfect person to answer it because he is a mobility trainer as well. well I so I think he would know, really, he can explain to everyone mm. who, who are non-blind to... Learn this because it's very important aspect of a blind person's life. Yeah. So, for example, I, I, so I, I Andrew, did, I did visual awareness training. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't okay. cast myself as a mobility you, trainer. Should, okay. a, should sure. a person wait for you to ask help, or do do you think people should? No, I think I think it's good that people offer, but I think it's also good that people should realise that we're individuals and you may get a blind person on a bad day when they don't, they're, they're not in a good mood and they may refuse help. But it, it, it you know, when I, I try and accept help because yeah. it's good for public relations, yeah. but also, of course, it's very useful practically, often if you're in a strange place. Yeah. Now, there are, when you say... Is there a right way to guide a blind person? I, I think it's almost better to start, is there a wrong way? Okay, yeah. The wrong way, is, is, the to wrong way? is to get them from behind and push them ahead of you. <laughs> that is really <laughs> odd. Has that happened to you? Um, Sometimes, yes. Not oh, quite. Wow, okay. Not quite. Well, sort of. Yeah. I mean, but I guess also... Pe um, people, do, people do try and, mm. you know, certainly that... It, 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 Yes, I mean it's not never happened to me disastrously, <laughs> but, but you do get people who do try and to guide you from behind, mm. and really that is really most gives you a very insecure feeling. Okay. Yeah, I can imagine. But also it's coming. It's also trying to see that someone is trying to be well-meaning and kind, yeah, but yeah. at the same time yeah, they yeah. don't know. Yeah. How now, to the, the, what I would say is the most common recommended way is that you take the sighted person's elbow mm. just above the elbow and through you that that way you're slightly behind them when mm. they're walking because you you're, you're behind their elbow mm. and you can feel through the elbow the way they're moving so even when you get to the top of stairs it's good practice to say stairs coming up we're at the top of stairs mm. you can feel because they're on a different level that they're going down a stair for instance mm. a step so it it you know that that is a very sensitive way of of being guided mm. and i would say that is the most approved way of doing it okay that's good to know okay so we're going to wrap up now because we have been talking for a while now and i don't want to um I don't want to sort of go into a lot of things where we're repeating, but um, I just wanted to thank you both so much for this opportunity. And um, I guess my last words for our listeners is that um, my aim with this conversation is for us to realise that people, there are people out there who have a completely different story than you and they have their own their own um, way of overcoming their adversities and hurdles. And this is what makes us strong and resilient and 
it all adds to our story and character. Um, but yeah, I hope that you felt very inspired by this conversation. I certainly did. Uh, what about Andrew? What about you, Andrew? Any last words for our listeners? Well, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I hope you've all learnt something from it. Obviously, we can only skim in within the time. You know, we've been, I've been at this business, been blind for 67 years. So what I picked up is 67 years. You can't pick up in one and a half hours or whatever. But I hope that you have picked up, you know, something useful from this. And don't be afraid to approach a blind person and talk to them. Uh, because that way, you know, it increases our broadness of life. I've met Jenny on the train. You know, that was a, a helpful encounter. It's been hope. Hopefully, it's been helpful for you as as well. I also want uh, your listeners to um, really um, request them uh, to be open um, for addressing the blind issues and I, I hope what we emphasized here will help them um, and it will help some somebody in the blind world really for future and um, as Andrew described I mean we this is only a beginning so whatever you really want um, more views or you know we, we are happy to help you with answering them in, in case in future if you if that need be uh, we i thoroughly enjoyed it i really have no inhibitions sharing my journey as a blind person hope it helps others to learn a bit about us as well which is and, and if i can add to, uh, if you if listeners have children don't be shy about letting them ask us questions and the thing is, we had a conversation about this on the way to the car, and we were talking about children's innocence in asking questions about um, when they see people who are different to them yeah. and who are disabled. And could you just um, talk about that? Uh, could we just like wrap up on that? In that, nobody needs to be afraid of asking. So. The thing is, when when I was doing this podcast, I was trying to think: is there, um, are there personal, are there questions that might be too personal? And I don't, I don't know you, Andrew. I don't see you every day, so I don't really, you know, I've gotten to know you more today. But I knew for a fact that you would not mind answering these kind of questions because you know that you must know how curious people can mm. be about certain things and yeah. it's just sort of fantastic to really learn mm. yeah. about these burning questions that people have and and like Andrew said don't be afraid of allowing your children or even yourselves to yeah, ask exactly. questions yeah exactly yeah. no, no, i think um, i think an, a, a, a bit of a hobby horse of mine is also that i think that the, the, the way that British education system has been set up in the past. Mm. It has been very segregated. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, people going away to public schools and stuff, and they don't come across a, such a breadth of society. And I think that um, you know, the more integrated we are, mm. the better. Mm. And I think even from the childhood, when that's being encouraged, that's helpful for developing a community with 
all sorts of disabilities being addressed because the child asks a question the parent or the teacher whoever is with them at that point if they answer them properly then the child learns to how to adapt to yes. that which is going to be very helpful in building the society with you know what to anticipate and if you just encounter such things what to do rather than shying away i know that when i told my 8 year old son about you both he was like can i come and i was <laughs> like not today but probably will arrange to meet up with andrew yeah. another time but um yeah yeah, well, yeah during the summer yeah. why can't you yeah, bring yeah. them to the patio and look at yeah. my garden flowers and oh, yeah we I'd can have a to. chat thank in the patio so thank <laughs> yeah. you so much i would yeah. i would definitely take you up on that offer yeah. um and also just to add to what andrew said i just think you know uh, if i didn't sort of pluck up the courage to talk to you that day on the train um, well it would have been a more, more boring journey for yeah. me anyway yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah and if i uh, if i didn't sort of and that's the thing we need to celebrate our differences and we need to be fascinated with people's stories regardless of who they are because everybody has got their own something to offer unique here unique story and i'm sure that people are amazed about your stories as soon as they started listening to hope they don't fall asleep <laughs> yeah. Yeah. okay thank you so much okay. you're welcome thank you. thank you thank you we'll do this again thank you thank you